It's December 12th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the president of Ukraine visits Washington, D.C. today. He and his supporters are asking U.S. taxpayers for $60 billion more in aid. We'll cover three areas of war developments that will help us decide whether that request is wise or not. Second, an update on China's cyber attacks on America's utility systems. We discussed this all the way back in July, but it turns out that those attacks were far worse than initially reported. Third, a surprising poll out of Texas this morning shows us that political alliances are shifting in this country in ways that might surprise you. But first, let's get to that top story of the morning. The president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, is in Washington, D.C. today. He's meeting with Joe Biden, along with congressional leaders in the Senate and the House. And he is here with one very big ask for America to issue him another $60 billion in debt and hand that money or war material over to him for his battle against Russia. But is that a wise use of your resources? Should America go further into debt for this cause? Well, to help us answer those questions, we are going to do a a status update on who exactly is winning this war and why. And to do that, we are going to look at three key areas to assess the war's progress, including economically, militarily, and diplomatically. So let's start with economics, about how both Russia and Ukraine's economies are performing so far in this battle. And here's why that's important. Mr. Biden said in March of 2022 that he and Europe had levied profound sanctions against Moscow, and that would cause, quote, a crushing blow to the Russian economy, end quote. All right, well, has that happened? The answer is no. Let me give you just one data point. Bloomberg News reported last week that October was Russia's best month in years when it comes to oil revenue. They collected a net of $11.3 billion dollars. So how is Russia escaping these otherwise, uh, well, supposed to be crushing sanctions? Well, data show that Russia is still selling petrol products to China, India, and even Europe itself. About a billion dollars a month goes to Moscow from European capitals to buy Russian liquefied natural gas. Now, I should note that Russia's economy, it is hurting with some serious long-term problems on the horizon. But the facts are pretty clear this morning. There has been no crushing blow economically to Moscow, as Mr. Biden and the Europeans promised us. Meanwhile, as for Ukraine and its economy, it certainly does exist, but largely because it's being propped up by Europe and the United States. We provide them tens of billions of dollars in aid to keep the government running, uh, to pay the pensions, to subsidize their ag industry, amongst other things. In fact, we have sent so much aid that we actually have forecasts of economic growth in Ukraine. Incredible. So that's the summary on the economic front, with Russia doing largely fine, and the Ukrainians mostly the same, both helped by foreign partners. In other words, we've got an economic stalemate. And that takes us to our next update, a military update, asking who's winning and who's losing on the battlefield. And here's the upshot. It's another stalemate, but Ukraine is likely to lose. So here's why. First, European diplomats said two months ago that they expect that this war will go on for another six to seven years. And that is far longer than they anticipated even last winter. 
And that shocking new timeline is largely because Ukraine's much celebrated counteroffensive against the Russians launched last spring. It failed. In fact, Ukraine's uh, chief war council admitted that just yesterday. And that failure is largely because Ukraine has had some pretty poor leadership, militarily speaking. And the U.S. Pentagon, well, they didn't help much either. They botched their efforts to guide the, their war strategy. If you'd like to read more about that, the Washington Post reported on that extensively last week. But perhaps most critically, Ukraine is likely to lose this war because of a challenge that they simply cannot overcome, and that's population. The Russian Federation has three times the population of men to pull from for future soldiers. In fact, Putin demonstrated that recently when he increased the size of his military to 1.3 million service members. And Ukraine simply can't keep up with that. In fact, President Zelensky can't even get the men that he does have to enlist. He is struggling right now because of increasing numbers of men who are dodging the draft and going throughout different places in Europe. Others, however, are paying off corrupt military recruiters to get out of service. By the way, all this has been reported by Bloomberg News and indeed confirmed by Ukrainian General Valery Zaluzhny just weeks ago. So that lack of Ukrainian manpower, I think it helps explain why Kiev is now switching strategies, dropping plans to retake their old territory and simply fortifying what they have. That was announced by Zelensky just a little over a week ago on national TV and reported by the Wall Street Journal and Reuters News Service, amongst others. Now, as for the Russians and their military performance so far, they have been profoundly bruised and bloodied as well. About 120,000 Russian fighters are dead, another 180,000 or so wounded. They have also lost just an ungodly amount of their tanks and other war material, and they are blazing through their artillery supplies. But as noted earlier, they can afford to lose all of that stuff because their economy is holding up, they've got a far bigger population, and they've got more allies to lean on, including some mercenary outfits like the Wagner Group. And that takes us to our third and final update about war progress in the Ukraine, and that's the issue of diplomacy. So let's start by asking who's supporting Russia versus who is supporting Ukraine, and how deep does that support go? Because that is quite important if this war could possibly go on for six or more years. So let's talk about Russia and their friends and allies first. As I've shared over the past nine months, Moscow can count on support from China, India, Arab nations like Saudi Arabia, Shiite nations like Iran, and others in Africa and Latin America too, from Brazil to Niger. However, as for Ukraine, its allies and friends are largely the United States and nations in Europe, but their support is not as deep, nor is it growing as compared to Russia's. In fact, new aid to Kiev is down to the lowest levels since Putin first invaded the country down 90% from last year's totals, mostly from a lack of European aid. That is, by the way, according to the Kiel Institute. Well, naturally, we should ask, why is that? Why are the Europeans not ponying up? Well, partly it can be explained by war fatigue. They just don't want to keep it up as they have other spending priorities. Although that is quite interesting. As we've discussed, this war is in their backyard. So you would think that European nations would be incentivized to keep up their support assuming that they thought that the Russian threat was existential. But that aside, I think that there is another reason for Europe's failure to support Ukraine, and that is because they can't. And here's what I mean by that. The Wall Street Journal recently did a deep dive into the state of European militaries and what they might be able to offer in terms of war material. And here's a small sample of what the journal found. 
In the United Kingdom, which is Europe's largest military spender, they only have 150 operable tanks. America, by comparison, has over 5,000. Meanwhile, the Brits are so low on things like rocket launchers that a while back, they actually asked museums in their country if they had any spare ones to give to Ukraine. The idea was later abandoned, but it shows how lean the UK is when it comes to weaponry. Next, we have France, the second largest military spender in Europe. They've got about 90 artillery pieces in their military in all. That, by the way, is equivalent to what the Russians lose in one month in Ukraine. But at least, hey, that's better than Denmark. They have no heavy artillery, nor any submarines or any air defense systems. Finally, we have the Germans. They've got about 100 operable tanks as of this morning. 30 years ago, they had 7,000. Meanwhile, the German army now sits at 180,000 men in total. They used to have around 1 million in the 1990s. Finally, if war were to come in Germany, they would only have enough artillery rounds to last them about two days of battle. At any rate, you get the picture. On and on this list goes of European forces that have the capacity of, say, three Boy Scout troops with slingshots, something like that. And the reason for that, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, is that European leaders fundamentally don't want to cut their social spending and then use that money on their military. That is largely because these governments are leftists. They have promised voters profound state spending, including a pretty dramatic increase for social spending for illegal migrants and asylum seekers who are unable or unwilling to work. Well, whatever you think about that, it means that these countries cannot properly defend themselves, let alone properly be the allies that Ukraine now needs. And to be fair, there are efforts by the Europeans to beef up their military spending, but that may or may not happen. Listeners can read all about that in the transcripts if you want to delve into that debate. But even if Europe manages to rebuild their military budgets over time, it'll take years and a lot of fighting over whether or how their factories can be properly built or retooled to manufacture all the stuff that they need. And that, my friends, is why Mr. Zelensky is in Washington, D.C. this morning. He knows that his only lifeline is in America, whether that be economically, militarily, or diplomatically. But there's one more part to this diplomatic topic that we need to discuss. Here's the question. How does this war end? On the battlefield or at a negotiating table? Well, Mr. Zelensky has already told us what he thinks. On May 21st of 2022, he addressed his nation on live TV, announcing that, quote, this war will be bloody. There will be fighting, but it will only definitively end through diplomacy, end quote. He then said that peace will not be easy to find as neither side wanted to give anything up, but peace through diplomacy was the only way to go. And now, here we are, 19 months since he said that, with hundreds of billions of dollars spent, over a half a million or so dead or injured, millions of others displaced, and here's the result. First, Russia's economy has not been crushed, as Mr. Biden or our European allies promised us. To the contrary, it's largely doing okay, Meanwhile, Ukraine's economy is doing all right as well, but propped up only with Western aid. Second, militarily, it's a stalemate. With Russia's war machine absolutely chewed up, that is true, but Ukraine's has been far more degraded, and its remaining men are avoiding service through either acts of corruption or dodging the draft. Finally, Russia has a strong network of allies all around the world that are providing them financial support and war materiel. Ukraine, however, is a bit more limited. 
They've got some European governments on their side, it is true. But those folks are backing off their commitments this morning in no small part because their military cupboards are mostly bare. And that leaves Kiev to lean on you, on American taxpayers, who as of this morning, polls show are going much more skeptical of this war. And you're also skeptical of the leaders at the Pentagon and the White House who are executing it. Plus, since the October 7th terror attacks in Israel, we now have a new challenge. Can America's military even possibly keep up with a provision of war material to not only Kiev, but also Israel and Taiwan? And, oh, by the way, defend the homeland in case we're attacked? And that is a big debate right now at the Pentagon, and no one's quite sure. So those are the facts and data this morning as Mr. Zelensky travels to Washington, D.C. and requests $60 billion or more dollars in deficit spending for his war effort. So let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion on what to make of all of this. So let's start with this. What is the goal in Ukraine? What does victory look like? Because back in March of 2022, Mr. Biden said that it was about regime change that Mr. Putin had to go. You may recall his speech in Poland at the time when he said that. Now, the White House later walked that back, but it is likely still the view of Mr. Biden and his team. And we know that because recently they've been making the argument that if Putin wins, he will march all the way to the shores of Germany and France, just like Hitler did decades ago. And that is why they say Putin cannot win. In fact, Mr. Biden will almost certainly say that again today. Although, to emphasize, ladies and gentlemen, this claim of Putin marching on Europe and throughout the continent, it is not supported by any intelligence assessment, at least not as of this morning. In other words, from my optic, I'm not sure what the goal might be in Ukraine or what victory looks like. But whatever it is, the collective we in Ukraine, Europe, and America, we are far from it. And we likely won't get there. Not militarily, not economically, nor diplomatically. Unless, unless we commit American troops. That is the Hail Mary option here this morning. That is what breaks the stalemate. Although that is also World War III, to be clear. So should we do that? Is Putin that much of a risk that we should start World War III? Because, my goodness, Ukraine simply cannot fall or the whole of Europe will fall with him. Well, I want you to answer and wrestle with those questions this morning and do so over our first commercial break. Because when we come back, we are going to talk about another adversary of ours. It's one that you as voters are far more worried about. And that's important to consider, I think, as we consider how to prioritize our money and ultimately the lives of our service members. We'll be right back. Folks, if you're looking for a new mattress, I've got one at 60% off. Yeah, we're talking about Ghost Bed, the company that I think makes the finest mattresses in all of America. As you know by now, I have the Lux model. That one is designed to help people like me who sleep a little bit hot. But that is not the only reason that I bought a ghost bed. I care mostly about craftsmanship and high-quality materials. And when you feel a ghost bed, you feel both the quality and the comfort. And you feel it, by the way, right out of the box, delivered right to your doorstep. Now, I do have a confession on that point. I was a little bit skeptical about buying a mattress that comes in a relatively small box. But however that magic works, well, I don't know, but it does work. And the mattresses are absolutely fantastic. Still, if you are skeptical like I was, don't worry. Ghostbed has a 101-day trial period plus free shipping and returns, so you can try it out in the comfort of your own home. 
So if you're looking for a mattress or you want to gift one to somebody this holiday season, go to ghostbed.com slash right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. And when you do, you are going to get 60% off your ghost bed purchase. But you got to use that web address. Again, folks, go to ghostbed.com slash right, W-R-I-G-H-T, and get yourself the good night's sleep that you deserve. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with an update on the China threat. Beijing is increasing their cyber attacks against American targets this morning, burrowing themselves deeper into our most vulnerable systems, especially our utilities. That's according to The Washington Post and others who are reporting on updates related to news that I brought you all the way back on July 31st. To refresh our memories, that's when we first learned that Chinese hackers had embedded a a new aggressive computer virus inside of critical systems. And those included water, power, communication systems like cell phone towers on or near U.S. military bases. And those were both in the homeland and abroad, especially in the Pacific. Now, as I said in July, the Chinese had hacked those critical systems in at least those military bases. But at the time, it wasn't clear if there were other targets, civilian targets, that had yet to be found. Now, I suggested to you that the answer was absolutely yes, at least based on my time at the CIA and knowing this target. Well, that refresh and recap takes us to the latest. The Chinese government indeed infected far more systems than were initially confirmed over the summer. We're now learning of additional civilian targets, too including a water utility in Hawaii, a major port on the West Coast, at least one oil and gas pipeline, uh, the entire Texas grid, uh, U.S. rail systems, and a series of, quote, logistic centers, end quote. Those, by the way, are probably uh, related to the trucking industry. Well, taken together, cyber officials within the U.S. military and intelligence communities say that these civilian targets make one thing very clear. These hacks are designed to prepare for the day that war comes between the U.S. and China, especially if Beijing were to invade Taiwan. So the goal then would to be, well, flip a switch, then shutting down essential services and causing nationwide chaos. The Chinese want to see American cities erupt in anarchy with looting, murder and banditry. And as our cities burn, the Chinese believe that the U.S. government is going to be so consumed with this domestic death and mayhem they are going to be less able to mount a response to fight back or save Taiwan. For what it's worth, this is precisely what I offered to you as far as my analysis when we discussed uh, this back in July. And because of that, I counseled you to prepare with emergency supplies of food and water, medicines and weaponry. Now, at the time, some of y'all wrote in saying, all right, Brian, put down the sauce. You might be a little bit too excited. But I based my assessment and my recommendations not only on these cyber threats, But also this, China, we now know, has set up clandestine intelligence bases in at least six known American cities, including places like Omaha, Nebraska and Charlotte, North Carolina. And from those bases, I offered to you that we would almost certainly see sabotage operations in even smaller towns all across the country. And speaking of threats far and wide within the homeland, we also talked about this, a dramatic uptick in Chinese nationals who are crossing over our southern border. And here's an update to that. So far this year, over 24,000 mostly Chinese men have crossed over illegally. That is more than the last 10 years combined. So those are the latest updated facts and data this morning on what is a profound and growing Chinese threat. 
in the cyber realm in our cities and over our border. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. First, I want to offer you a general rule. If you think that the China threat is bad, I promise you that it's about 10 times worse than you can possibly imagine. And I tell you, I wish the White House would help all of us realize this by declassifying about just half of the stuff of what we know about Beijing, right? Present that to the American people, maybe through a a series of fireside chats like President Roosevelt did many years ago, because I think that that would wake up this country to the unrelenting and absolutely existential threat posed by the Communist Party of China. It would also probably shame some of our elites in D.C. and throughout corporate America who are bootlooking the communists for cash and power, which is probably why no White House wants to take me up on this idea. But anyway, second, I want us to consider this brief that I just gave you about China and consider now the first brief of the morning about Ukraine. So I ask you this, who is the bigger, more immediate threat, China or Russia? In my view, that is how we need to frame this debate and this discussion. Which threat gets our attention and our resources and why? Now, reasonable people, I think, can disagree on this. But as you think about it, I'd offer you a poll out last week that tells us that the overwhelming majority of Americans view China as a far greater threat than Russia. In fact, 77% of you view China as an enemy. So based on that, If we are going to issue $60 billion in debt, perhaps those resources ought to be directed at what you all have discerned to be the the greatest threat to you and your families. Now, that certainly makes logical sense to me, but I'm not so sure that that has sunk in with your political leadership in D.C. And I think that is why many of them are advocating dollars for Kiev instead of money from focus on the border or to stop China's aggression. By the way, if you want to change that, here's an idea. Bombard your elected leaders in D.C. this morning with emails and phone calls. Send them a message. Go to Senate.gov or House.gov. Look up your two senators and House rep and drop them a line. And use the links in the transcript or edit the transcript and, and make it your own. I don't care. Send it to them. That's what the transcripts are for, for all of us to make change. So do it. Be respectful as always, but get a little bit loud. And that's because, my friends, a vote on more Ukraine war funding will likely take place later this week. Finally this morning, and speaking of politics, we head to Texas, where political winds there continue to change the Lone Star State in ways that you might not expect. So here's what I mean. A polling company called Signal recently surveyed residents of the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. For folks unaware, that region has historically been deeply blue politically, Consider the fact that in the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton won this area with 79% of the vote. But that is changing. Many of these folks proudly call themselves Tejano before any other identity or political party. Many of these folks are old Texas families who have been in the area for 100, 150 or more years. And they are proudly Americans first. Never mind that the media often mislabels them as Hispanic or Mexican Americans. They are Americans. So this latest poll from Signal is now showing how this group is changing, shaking off its old political alliances with Democrats and creating some new ones. So for instance, when these folks were asked which of the two likely presidential candidates they would prefer, these voters were basically split. Biden was up 4% over Trump, although that is far less than Clinton's victory. Meanwhile, when they were asked about immigration 
61% of these Rio Grande voters wanted more secure borders. They also favored tighter immigration laws. As for social issues, these Tejanos are gravitating towards greater conservative positions too. Like 62% are in favor of abortion restrictions, or 74% oppose allowing men to compete in women's sports, regardless if these men call themselves trans. Finally, there's this. 69% of these voters in the Valley believe that the American dream remains achievable to them and their children. Just takes hard work. So the point, folks, if I can now shift to my analysis and opinion, I want to offer you this reflection. So yesterday, we spoke of what we are seeing throughout this country at mostly leftist universities as they and their professors and students frame the world that we live in uh, as the oppressed on one side and the oppressors on the other. And what they would say to these folks, the Tejanos, is that they are the oppressed. They are held down by the, the white people or the Jewish people in Texas and beyond. But what this polling is telling us about these folks in the Rio Grande Valley, well, they're just not buying it. They are proudly Americans, and they still believe in the American dream, that we are a melting pot of people who can get ahead. You just got to work hard. So common sense is still alive, and political alliances are shifting because of it. So let that inspire you today as we face otherwise pretty heavy news about Ukraine or China or those crazy extinctionists, right? Part of that movement that we spoke of yesterday. Know, ladies and gentlemen, that there is power to change all of what is around us, especially on the local level. And as you organize, just remember, there are people who want to join you in changing this country for the better. They are all around you in unexpected places sometimes, including, and especially this morning, in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. We have covered a lot of ground this morning, so we're going to hold off on a listener question today. But as always, I'm going to see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. Your Happily Ever After is waiting for you in the Chrysler Pacifica and Pacifica Plug-In Hybrid. With available all-wheel drive, Pacifica helps handle adverse conditions like magic. And with the Plug-In Hybrid, it can help your range anxiety disappear. Make your drive even more enchanted in the Chrysler Pacifica. And watch Disney's Disenchanted, now streaming only on Disney Plus, rated PG. Disney Plus subscription required. Must be 18 plus to subscribe. EPA estimated 520 mile total range with a fully charged battery. Actual mileage may vary.